It's that time of the year again. World leaders, politicians, journalists, scientists, after a freakish year of natural disasters and record-breaking temperatures, they're all heading to Dubai. 70,000 delegates from nearly 200 countries gather in Dubai this December. Dubai is getting ready to host the biggest climate conference yet, an estimated 70,000 delegates to COP28. The 20th Conference of the Parties, or COP, as it is referred to, kicks off in Dubai. But a lot has changed since the last time this group met in Egypt for COP27 exactly a year ago. We were just contending with one war, but now global tensions have extended to new regions. The ongoing Israel-Hamas war has brought back memories of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which had triggered an oil crisis that year. Budgets are being reworked and energy transitions are becoming tougher and more expensive and some have refused to walk the talk. UK's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is planning to take a step back on some of the government's net zero policies. Even those like India who are racing ahead of deadlines on renewable energy are not cutting the fixation with fossil fuels anytime soon. All this, even as earlier this month, the global temperature for the first time breached the 2 degree Celsius threshold since the start of industrialization a level that scientists have been warning could be the climate's breakpoint. So as 167 world leaders, including the Pope and King Charles III, gather in the oil mecca of the world to discuss climate change, we bring you the beginner's guide to the summit as we ask whether COP28 will be another COP or another COP-out. In this episode, I speak to ET's climate coverage veteran Urmi Goswami, who is in Dubai for the summit. I expect Prime Minister Modi to to focus on India's renewable plans, its successes, its G20 presidency. I also talked to Dhanpal Javeri, CEO of climate investment firm Eversource Capital, on why money will be key to meet climate goals. So over the last three years, we've not seen more than about $15, $20 billion come into the climate investments. And this 15 to 20 actually needs to increase significantly for us to be able to meet our 30 targets of attracting at least a trillion dollars of capital to climate in India. It's the 30th of November. From ET Prime, I'm your host Mugdha Varier and you're listening to The Morning Brief. COP28 is being seen as the midway point to track the progress on the sustainable development goals which nations had adopted in 2015 and which are to be achieved by 2030. This is also a crucial COP because it will see the first global stock take, which is essentially a process where the countries will collectively take stock of whether we are on track to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And what was the main goal? that we limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius from the pre-industrial era. Well, it is clearly not looking good. But with that, let me check in with Urmi on why the Dubai COP28 matters. 
Urmi, the COP28 is being seen as a crucial midpoint to take stock of the climate goals that we have committed to earlier and whether we are on track. So can you tell us what the main agenda is going to be and what will the process of the global stock take entail? Now, how the agenda is set is very simple. There's a whole list of things that need to be done, some mandated from previous COPs and some which individual parties or groups of parties put on the agenda saying these are issues important to us and therefore should be discussed by the COP. So among the issues that are definitely going to be discussed because they were mandated either in the Paris Agreement or in subsequent COPs is the first and the most important one is the global stock take, which you just referred to. The global stock take is, as the name suggests, it is about seeing how we are performing collectively as a world, as a collection of countries, compared to the long-term goals we set in the Paris Agreement, which is basically keeping temperature increase uh, to well below two degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. It's about seeing how all financial flows are aligned to the Paris Agreement. It's about adaptation, about creating resilient economies. The Article 2 of the Paris Agreement sets out the long-term goals. Now we already know, and we don't need a special sort of session to tell us that we are way off track. And now the question is, what will we do? So that is the central issue that will be dealt with in, at Dubai. And then there are a host of issues. Finance will keep coming up, mitigation, adaptation. You will even look at loss and damage. So in a sense, we are going to be discussing the entire scope of the Paris Agreement in at this COP in Dubai. So, I mean, every other agenda exists, but this is the core and the most important one. For the past few COP summits, there has been this constant tussle over the use of the phrase phase down and phase out. I remember last year at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, India was pushing hard to get the final document to have the term phase down of all fossil fuels and not just coal. But that didn't happen. So will that demand now carry over into COP28? We can only hope that India continues from where it left off at Sharm el-Sheikh. If you remember Sharm el-Sheikh, we had the support of roughly 80 countries, including the European Union and its 27 member states, the United Kingdom. And of course, we had to change the wording a bit to make it unabated fossil fuels, which basically in the case of oil and gas, unabated does exist. But that had to be done to accommodate the U.S. and obviously some other countries. And uh, we can only hope that India will continue with this effort because it is in its national interest. It's in the interests of science. It's in keeping with science and in keeping with equity. But as of now, we don't have any real indication whether India is going to play not only smart, but the correct option of calling for phase out of all fossil fuels. But Urmi, we can't not talk about the irony of a COP being held in an oil-producing country. And there's been a lot of chatter around this in the run-up to COP28, especially because we have Sultan Al-Jabbar, who is chairing the event and who is the head of the state-owned oil company. And reports are now suggesting that he has plans to also discuss fossil fuel deals with countries alongside climate talks. So how is he going to assure other countries that they're going to take climate issues very seriously. And you've interviewed him yourself. So what are his commitments? This is not the first time that a fossil fuel producing country or even an oil and gas producing country is hosting the COP. And we have had successful COPs 
you know, Poland is a prime example. Poland has actually hosted four COPs and it's a coal producing country. So I wouldn't write off a COP simply because it's situated in a country that has an economy that is focused on oil and gas. What makes COP28 remarkable or unique in that sense is that the or president-designate of COP28 is not just the president-designate of this process, but also the CEO or the head of the national oil company. As you mentioned, he's the head of ADNOC. And he was the head of ADNOC even when he was the climate envoy for UAE. But it's not that he demitted that office when he took over as the COP president. He continues to be the head of the oil company. So he's basically wearing two hats, right? And two hats that some would say are in conflict, which it is, but some would also say can be synergized because at the heart of addressing the climate issue is to reduce human dependency on fossil fuels. So we cannot have a conversation without the fossil fuel people in the, in the room. And, you know, as we know, the fossil fuel industry has had an outsized influence on this process. But remember, the COP is a process by consensus. And this is where countries become very important. This is where civil society and all the energy that has been drumming, pointing out this fact of this dichotomy that exists, this paradox, that the person who heads the oil and gas company is sitting atop the COP process. This is where it comes to play. You mentioned these reports about doing oil leads on the side. Yeah, that is a bit of a concern. But we have always known that when you put leaders in the mix, you will always have side deals happening. In this case, unfortunately, it will do with more oil and gas. But it could be other issues as well. You are looking at renewed rush to secure oil uh, and gas sources because energy security has now come into the play. Now, that is the mix in which we exist. So, yes, there is an irony to Sultan al-Jabbar being the COP28 president designate. There is definitely an irony to it. On Wednesday, Sultan al-Jabbar was asked at a press conference just a day before COP28 kicks off to clarify on reports on whether the UAE plans to use its role as the host of COP28 as an opportunity to also strike oil and gas deals. He dismissed the reports. These allegations are false, not true, incorrect, and not accurate. And it's an attempt to undermine the work of the COP28 presidency. Urmi, there has been a lot of criticism about the fact that COP has come to be dominated by the big oil companies. And you know, one interesting point this time is that Mukesh Ambani of Reliance is also going to be part of the advisory committee to Al Jabbar. And Reliance, of course, has continuously spoken of its efforts to transition to green energy and clean energy. So is that what we are going to expect even at COP28, where a lot of the big oil companies are going to talk about their transition and their commitments for clean energy? There is already a lot of conversation that Al Jabbar, of course, is having uh, because he has been facing this criticism. And to be honest, when I spoke to him, he basically said, you know, it's not a fair criticism. Look at my record. Why are you looking at me as the guy who is going to be, you know, protecting the oil company? But instead, why don't you look at me as the man who is going to help transform the oil company because I'm in that unique position to do it? Now, the question really is, that if you look at oil companies today, or I would actually take it a little further and say fossil fuel companies slash hydrocarbon companies, then 
what kind of transition plans do they have? Many of these companies talk about net zero targets and things like that, but actually what kind of transition plans do you have? This is a COP where we should be asking them, what is the substantial effort that you're taking? I know that there have been meetings that have been held and some events, and Sultan Al-Jabbar has promised that there will be something, you know, interesting that will be announced. I suppose they're keeping the powder dry because clearly, you know, he is pretty sensitive about, about being criticized for his ad hoc job. If you take the case of any any of these companies, whether it's Reliance or Adnoc or Aramco or anybody, it is not that uh, we, are, we should be only looking at what are they doing in the green space. It is what they're doing in their, you know, brown and gray space. Are they reducing their fossil fuel exposure? What are they doing there? That is the critical part. It's no fun if you keep saying that, oh, I'll make green hydrogen, I'll make uh, wind, I'll make solar, but I'll also keep pumping gas. Urmi, there is another irony going into COP28, which is that India recently held the G20 summit and the G20 declaration talked about tripling of renewable energy and improving energy efficiency, etc. But then recently, India also said that it will increase its coal production by around 50% to meet the growing demand. And it doesn't seem to be backing down on the use of coal. So how will that play out at COP28? First thing that I don't think there's an irony here. I think there is a bit of a tragedy here. And I'll tell you what the tragedy is. If you look at India's commitment in terms of increasing the green quotient of its energy system, you would have to acknowledge that India is actually among the better players And it's also performing. It's not just it's promising, but it's also delivering. We have committed to have 450 gigawatts of uh, renewable energy by 2030. That's a lot. Technically, we are almost tripling our renewable energy uh, sort of space. But why did I say that it's not an irony, but a tragedy? Now, here is a country which is saying that it will do more on renewable. It has set out a target. But remember that unlike other most G20 countries, our energy need is not just about replacement. So it's not about we are replacing a coal plant with a renewable energy plant, like you would have done in Germany or in the UK. In our case, there are two things that are happening. There is replacement and there's a growth in demand. Current calculations of uh, demand growth is roughly about at 8%, which is a huge amount of demand. Now, virtually every leader will tell how now renewables are cheaper than coal or any fossil fuel, but definitely cheaper than coal. So therefore, it makes, you know, it's logical. If something is cheaper, then why not do that? Now, here is the problem. And perhaps this is the irony. Whereas renewables are cheaper than coal, so therefore a unit of power will cost less. But the upfront cost of doing renewables vis-a-vis coal is is double. Now, where is the money? About 80% of India's investment in this space is from domestic sources. You have growing demand. You understand the need to move away. You have a limited purse. You're not getting anybody to help you or even the help that's coming is very, very paltry. So what do you do? Your choice literally then is that we'll say, okay, fine, we'll do renewable and we'll slow down the pace of growth because we won't be able to meet demand. Now, is that something that any country can do? And therefore, you fall back on coal. So again, I hate to keep coming back to this, but the key balancing issue is finance. 
the issue of climate finance will be key at COP28. So I thought I'll get some perspective from someone who's in the world of finance and who has been actively investing in climate infrastructure. Dhanpal Javeri is vice chairman of investment firm Everstone Group and is also the CEO of Eversource Capital, a climate investment firm which has made close to 1.2 billion dollars of investments. Dhanpal, thank you so much for joining us. You know, COP28 is coming on the back of the New Delhi G20 declaration which had several climate commitments around renewable energy. Now, India has a commitment to reach 500 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2030. But I remember last year while going into COP27, India had dropped the target. It didn't want to be held to this number and this target. So I want to ask you how achievable and feasible do you think are India's targets on renewable energy? Hey Mukta, first of all thanks a lot for having me here. I'm pretty excited to talk about climate, something which is dear to me personally and something which at Eversource for the last 5 years we've been building this very unique platform investing across climate in in India and in the region. And I think the reason primarily comes from the fact that we think that India has taken pretty much of a pole position since the time of the paris agreement we have become one of the top countries in the world in terms of uh, renewable energy installations for new energy assets we have actually been the only g20 country which has actually met its nationally determined climate contributions and in fact in many of those contributions we are 9 years ahead of plan we have already delivered over 175 gigawatts of uh, renewable energy assets and we continue to add somewhere between 15 to 20 gigawatts of renewable energy assets on an annual basis now having said that our ambitions are to move from about 200 gigawatts to close to about 500 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030 which means adding another 300 gigawatts and that requires us to add 40 to 50 gigawatts every year for the next 6 to 7 years and this in my mind requires us to shift gears to be able to one raise climate capital to address this massive capital investment and two create more lubrication in both the policy frameworks and on the end consumer demand to be able to make sure that we can actually not just build the energy assets but transmit it and also consume it over the next 6 to 7 years There's a big cost for renewable energy. So how successful do you think India has been in attracting climate financing for its climate goals and especially attracting non-domestic capital? So this is a real in my mind a challenge which India has raised in every COP and is a challenge of directing global north capital to the global south and India being one of the large global south countries as a recipient country. the reason i say this is because uh, the need today as per international energy association is at least 4 and a half to 5 trillion dollars of climate capital to be invested annually across the world we yet have just last year globally crossed a trillion dollars of climate investing on a global basis however that trillion dollars comes down to a very very small trickle when it comes to india and we are seeing less than 1% of that capital actually come into india so over the last 3 years we've not seen more than about 15 20 billion dollars come into the climate investments and this 15 to 20 actually needs to increase 
significantly for us to be able to meet our 2030 targets of attracting at least a trillion dollars of capital to climate in India. Dhanpal, I also want to ask you about the role of oil companies, and especially because Eversource Capital's joint venture partner, which is Lightsource BP, counts British Petroleum as a key partner and investor, and it is one of the biggest oil companies. Now, there has been a lot of talk about the role of oil companies at COP28, especially because it is at a time when a COP is being led by the head of one of the largest oil companies. So what are the expectations when it comes to oil companies in terms of announcing their commitments especially on reducing methane emissions which are far more harmful to the climate First and foremost just you know if you look at it and these are again international data points uh, the global energy market today the subsidies on fossil fuels today globally is close to 7 trillion dollars per annum that is a kind of subsidies the world is basically paying for energy to be run using fossil fuels and this subsidies is in two nature it's something explicit and implicit the explicit subsidies are where governments and countries price oil and gas below their true cost operating cost of taking it out and you know distributing it and therefore citizens of those countries actually get the benefit and the implicit is all of the carbon costs and the impact of carbon on other on planetary issues itself which is the implied cost right so 7 trillion dollars of subsidy against that the world needs today as per iea 4 and a half to 6 trillion dollars of investments in climate now the question is how do you basically create some sort of an equitable structure in this twin balance sheet problem as i call it and this is where the role of oil and gas companies comes into play and which is essentially how do be they build pathways such that while they are continuing to provide the conventional energy required for the world and the economies to run they're also building pathways to become more and more clean and this is where i think the role of oil and gas companies needs to be leading rather than basically following the pack if you look at the total investments that they are making in new oil and gas assets and energy assets as compared to in renewables again it's a I think the last estimates are close to five percent is going to renewables and ninety-five percent is going into building more conventional energy assets. So this equation needs to change, and I think a lot of the narrative around COP twenty-eight is going to be that. In a way, it's good that the leader of one of the world's largest oil and gas companies is actually leading the climate discussion and the climate collaborative, which is COP, because that at least brings everyone center stage and makes them part of the discussion itself. I think one of the areas where we've definitely seen some tangible action is in the area of methane. Methane is a very interesting gas. It's a global warming greenhouse gas. The impact of methane is as much as 85 times the impact of CO2 when it is emitted in the atmosphere. The oil and gas companies have taken an initiative led by the US and led by many other oil producing nations to create something called the methane pledge. and that is a good initiative and a good kind of step forward for them but i think the big challenge is going to be and the big therefore announcement that we expect oil and gas companies to make is really about increasing their commitment of investment dollars to clean energy and that is something that i think will pave the way for a lot of the climate lending or climate financing that needs to take place globally so we will watch out for discussions around climate financing renewable energy and the global stock take at cop28 
But before we wrap, let me quickly go across to Urmi for one final question before she gets knee deep in tracking the developments at COP28 over the next 12 days. And that is on what India's stand is likely to be. Urmi, last year Prime Minister Narendra Modi had skipped attending COP27. This year he's expected to be at COP28 in Dubai. So what do you think India's pitch is going to be this year? As we know that Prime Minister Modi will be in Dubai for the World Leader Summit, which is basically the big event that kicks off uh, the COP uh, with the leaders and sets the tone for this moment. They'll also focus on where we are and where we should be. And I expect Prime Minister Modi to focus on India's renewable plans, its successes, its G20 presidency. And one of the big things that I expect that he would focus on in this context would be the life mission. That's one big thing. The other big thing that I expect him to focus on is the Green Development Pact, that you cannot have this conversation on climate change and addressing climate change without focusing on development. Do we expect new promises? I am not completely sure whether what will happen, but I do expect there will be some uh, reiteration or spotlighting on things that we are doing right or we plan to do. But I expect, among other things, of course, he will once again focus on financing. We can Because I think that is the big case India needs to make. What I expect the prime minister to do is to build on what we have achieved as G20 presidency. Remember that India also positioned itself as the voice of the global south, of developing countries. It's actually in this unique position to be able to be exactly that, way more than China, way more than any other country. So I expect this question of development and climate action to be an important element of what he says. We will check in with Urmi and other experts again as COP28 progresses to see if there has been any real action to put us back on track of limiting global warming. 2023 is said to be the hottest year on record. We have briefly breached the 2 degree Celsius threshold already. Earlier this year, the ominous doomsday clock, which represents how close we are to a global catastrophe, was reset to show that we have 90 seconds till midnight. The clock is ticking. Thank you for listening. I'm your host Mukdha Varier from ET Prime and you're listening to The Morning Brief. This episode was brought to you by sound editor Indranil Bhattacharji and producer Surohini Jain. TMB's executive producers are Anupriya Nair, Anirban Chaudhary and Arijit Barman. If you like this episode, do spread the word. A new episode of The Morning Brief podcast drops every Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. It streams on Amazon Prime Music, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and of course on ET's own audio platform, ET Play. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits are mentioned in the description. 